Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders exploring behavioral science. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. There is a lot going on in our world these days. Lots of uncertainty and unrest, both in the U.S. and throughout the rest of the world. And while we believe that behavioral science isn't the cure-all to all of our problems, having a better understanding of why people behave the way they do, well, we think that can help. Yeah. Our guest today exemplifies how behavioral science can help a larger world. We're talking with David Yoakum, and David cut his teeth in behavioral science by being a fellow in the first White House social and behavioral science team. He then went on to work as the director of the lab at D.C., which was working on applying behavioral science to city-based issues. And David is currently the director and founder of the Policy Lab at Brown University and the host of the 30,000 Leagues podcast. The mission of the Policy Lab at Brown University is, and I quote, to work in concert with government leaders and experts to develop evidence-based policy programs that improve lives and strengthen communities. So this is that element of helping the world in a larger way. And in my mind, I don't know, has to be one of the coolest missions anywhere. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, we were lucky enough to talk to David about the changing role of behavioral science inside government. Uh, we talked about some of the experiments that he's run and how working proactively in gaining agreement up front on the experimental design with the community and policymakers can really help across the political divides and actually change mindsets. Which is a pretty freaking amazing thing, if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> we also talk about disconnecting and the need to reach charge. All in all, it was a very insightful conversation. So with that, we ask you to sit back with your favorite public policy brew and enjoy our conversation with David Yoakum. David Yoakum, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Tim and Kurt, it's great to see you guys. Yeah, welcome back, David. That's what we need yeah. to say. This is yes. not not the first time on here. And so you know you know the routine. You know we start with the speed round. And so I'm going to begin. So travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all. This is for work or for play? This Whoa. is for play, but uh, yeah. No, no itinerary. Ooh, I like play. you. I like you already. There you go. Yeah. You want to you get there and then see... What's yeah. popping? What kind of recommendations you have? That's where you explore and find the things that are right, right at that moment. So do you go, do you have like a, at least the, the first kind of hotels set up and like where you're staying, but then you like through the day you get to go? Or are you just like that? Hey, I have a backpack and I'm going to end up in, you know, Florence, Italy. And we'll just guess wherever we, we wherever we end up that night, we end up. <laughs> well, I don't, usually, I don't usually travel to other countries without some basic lodging <laughs> sorted out. So yeah, I don't know. I usually have a hotel or something. But, and you know, I'll read in advance about the area to build up some intuitions about what's there. I like to kind of look yeah. at maps and things like that. But I think hitting the streets on foot and starting to walk around, you know, if you're in a new place for any chunk of time, it's difficult to overstate how many interesting things you'll just see and encounter in terms of people if you're walking around. Um, and you know, nowadays Google maps and stuff like that, they don't always 
like literally don't always show all the institutions on the map. I don't know right. if that reflects, you know, needing to pay for it or something like that, but you'll discover places that aren't on the internet in the same way if you go on foot. Exactly. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, okay. Would you, pref- would it be easier for you to give up your mobile phone or your laptop for a year? I would give up both for a year. <laughs> I love hearing that. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I would, what would it take? give up both. What, what would it take for you to give up both for a year? Well, I would need to put in place some structures, I guess, for how folks <laughs> contact me. But every six or months or 12 months or so, I try to go off the grid for a week. No screens whatsoever. So literally doing the yeah. no phone, the no laptop, and a deep disconnect like that. And, you know, people have written about this kind of stuff, but that kind of deep disconnect does put your brain in a different wavelength, I think, in terms of just yeah. extended periods of time to to think and reflect, to not disconnected to what we were just talking about a second ago. I mean, it was actually on one of my weeks without a phone that by necessity, I was just walking around and getting lost and noticed that in my neighborhood that I'd lived in for several years, there was a restaurant two blocks from me that I literally did not know was there because it never showed up on Google Maps <laughs> when I would search for restaurants. And it became like one of my favorite places. And so just opening yourself up to observing things that aren't on the screen, giving yourself extended periods of time, not having a constant impulse to check, highly, highly recommend everybody do that at some frequency. So you've done this. What do you, after coming back from that, are you more energized? Do you just feel a little bit more grounded? What, what, what is kind of some of the results that you've seen from at least when you've done this? I do feel better, just overall refreshed and more energy as well as more creative. Again, I think the benefits of having an hour or two hours or three hours even or four hours if you're going on a long walk where you're not being interrupted by information from some outside source lets you play around with ideas in your mind in a way that just is of a qualitatively different order than if you're only spending 10 minutes thinking about something. And, you know, if you think about examples throughout the history of science of when people have had breakthrough thoughts and things like that, it's, it's not, it's not five minutes between apps where there's just like a circle. <laughs> it's when they're thinking deeply about something for hours right. and hours. And so right. the opportunity to let things marinate in your mind in that way just makes me feel energized. It makes me feel a little more creative. It also gives you some distance from just the flow of whatever happens to be popping on social media or something like that. You kind of, I don't know, I come back and find all of it a little abrasive almost, like almost a shock value of just like the quantity of advertisements and stuff when you open up the screen again. And you find, I find anyway, myself wondering how we let ourselves slip into that as much as we have. You kind of need to like step out of it for a while to see it again. Yeah, we've become immune not immune to it but kind of it just it it's there and we don't notice it because it's just it's become part of that everyday thing and and until you take yourself out of that situation it's hard to actually take notice of it but it's impacting us every single day like you said i've done i've done things where i've done a month long kind of getaway this was well before internet was big and even coming back at that point it was just like i felt for myself i was like floating above everything and it everything just was down below and 
I felt kind of disconnected in a good way, not in a bad way of just saying, I don't need to worry about all of that politics that's going on in the office. I don't need to worry about all of that stuff because had a different perspective that went away within a week. But, you know, that was it was a nice week of having that that feeling of floating and kind of being above and not having to really worry about that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And for those of us who can't just go off the grid for a year plus, I mean, I did come back and implement some simple changes in terms of come six o'clock at night, I put my phone away Mm. for a basic thing. I don't have email and stuff open in the backdrop all the time. And these are places where there's been research as well, showing that, for example, having your browser email up in front of you is highly distracting. But even doing a a few things to disconnect for some set hours each day or some rules around a little bit of disconnect on the weekend can give you some dosage of what we were describing a minute ago. It's maybe not the full dose you get if you go off the grid for a week, but it's something. And I've been doing that since I did my first week-long disconnect, so two or so years now, and feels great. Other becomes a conversation piece in an interesting way. So it's led to some nice changes in the work environment, for example, to where previously people might expect to be able at any instant to have a conversation about work, whereas they realize if you're going to disconnect, it's led to a kind of positive clustering of topics to talk about. And so rather than five minutes here or there at any odd hour of the day, we'll have a focused, deeper conversation for like an hour once in the week. And that's actually more efficient when you kind of look back. It takes less time to do that in a focused way, but it took first putting in place some rules about accessibility and when you're going to be online, when you're going to have screens in front of you. Yeah. Fantastic. Just out of curiosity, do you go someplace? You've you've talked about when you disconnect, you you go somewhere specific. Do you have a a place that you go to? Are you envisioning like a closet with foam walls around it. <laughs> I myself no, in. no. Actually, <laughs> actually, for you, I was thinking of like a, a mountain retreat or something. You know, but, <laughs> no. you know. Well, I've often done these just in location and we'll just put stuff away, oh. right? Now, being able to go out into the woods or something like that is also great for just the exposure to the, the environment. But the disconnect itself, I mean, the first time I did this, I just literally gave my wife, Sarah, my phone and laptop and basically said, no matter what I ask for, don't give this back to me, <laughs> which was an important rule because at first it takes, a, it takes, yeah. it took yeah. me about 48 hours or so to stop thinking about the phone every couple of minutes. Like there is a period of, of disconnect where you realize, or I realized for me, there was some sort of addiction that was there that you had to like kind of break through. And so having, you know, some friends that'll support you in this and, Lock up your equipment, uh, which again doesn't take a lot to do that. And like during the week, you know, I just have like a little box that I put my phone in when I'm doing the nightly disconnect. And that's all it takes to at least put it out of sight. And so you don't have the same temptation level. There's a lot of behavioral science on this front, right? Like remove the immediate sensory temptation from your environment. You'll do a little bit better and just naturally ignoring it. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I, I, I just had this, you know, this, this vision of some Ralph Waldo Emerson like experience, you know, <laughs> but you can do it at home, it's, I, which is great. That's inspiration. We should, you know, our people, listeners should take that into consideration. All right. Our speed round right. as, as typical right. <laughs> has, has not been speedy by any means. All right. No, David, Pepsi, Coke, or some other drink of choice beyond coffee or tea. Ooh. Beyond coffee. I see why you had to implement <laughs> that, I'm sure, from all the prior times of asking it. I this is gonna feel like a very lame answer, but a very cold glass of water, huh? I think is 
underestimated in its refreshingness, particularly if you're particularly thirsty or hot. So cold, nice ice water. There you go. It hits our DNA just the right way, doesn't it? Cool yeah. water. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last speed round question. Does applying behavioral science to public institutions deliver better policy? What would you do if I said no to this? <laughs> <laughs> you the whole rest of the conversation. Yes. Well, I that was it's great, been nice David. talking Thank to you. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> See y'all later. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. And uh, next on Behavioral Grooves. <laughs> Okay. Well, what are you, what are you, let, let, I mean, let's just start the conversation there. You know, you've, you've been working in, in government for, for many years, right? I mean, going back to your fellowship with the white house, you know, um, you, you've spent virtually your, your entire career kind of crossing behavioral science and, and or psychology with, uh, with public policy. And does it, are, is it, does it yield results? I guess uh, sort of at a simple level, it does. does it deliver? It does. And I'm sure we'll get into some particular examples of interventions that have shown improvements. But I mean, to say it very explicitly, and you guys have explored this on the podcast for years now, but to say it very explicitly, public policy, where we're trying to make decisions about how to kind of organize our communities or states or nations, it's all about assumptions of how people are currently behaving and assumptions about how they might behave differently if we have in place a different policy or a different program. And so the whole process is just baked with behavioral science implications. Are we getting those assumptions right? If we're assuming that, for example, people are going to get motivated in different ways by different tax policies or job programs, is that in case, is that actually true? Mundane city stuff. If you're talking about the design of streets and signs, does it actually interplay with what we know about people's visual system and their attention and what they notice? Just like example after example after example, where if you have a sharper understanding of how people actually process information, what they actually notice, then you can tailor your programmatic and policy designs to, to mesh with that. And then the other little thing I would just add here, though, beyond the kind of core knowledge pieces is that the methods of behavioral science, by which I mean in particular a very close kind of observation of what people actually do, asking lots of questions of folks, you know, being very patient and meticulous to try to think about the design of environment, coupled with skills and running experiments, you know, actually deploying based on those observations, not just one idea, but 10, or I would say, you know, 50 different ideas, and then trying to measure which one works best. Those two kind of design and experimental punches from a method standpoint is something that I think to the extent we can inject that in government, the better results we're going to see in terms of what government is able to do for our communities. Mm. So, David, you've been working in this for quite some time, as Tim mentioned at the beginning there. What changes have you seen from the implementation of behavioral science into government policy from when you started? Because if we think back, I mean, government was one of the first kind of large, I mean, even more so than, than business, I think, to actually adopt a behavioral science mindset and say that, yes, we can use these principles, as you said, in our policymaking and in making, you know, uh, improving the programs and everything else that we do. And that's been going on for 15 plus years, I think, in, in, in or more, right, in, in some of those government things. So what changes have you seen? Have you seen anything grow, anything kind of disappear, where something new coming in? What have you what have you experienced? Well, the 
awareness at a kind of high level of what behavioral science has to bring is something that I think is more common now in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago. I don't mean anything fancy by that. I just mean, you know, talking to a particular civil servant or politician, the odds that they'll be familiar with at least at some high level about the fact that behavioral science could help has increased. But the other concrete thing is that there are simply more people dedicated are recruited to think about behavioral science explicitly. So you alluded to one of the shops that I was a part of putting together at the federal level called the White House's Social and Behavioral Sciences Team. Work is still there and actually grown a lot. It's just called the Office of Evaluation Sciences at the GSA. It's literally dozens of social scientists who've been brought into the federal government under the explicit charge to think about what not just behavioral science, but social science more broadly has to offer to the Mm -hmm policy setting. We're also starting to see that spread some through state and more local government. So I left the federal level um, deliberately to start to go to more local levels to help on this capacity front. So moved to the mayor's office in DC and set up something called the lab at DC, which again was a team of social scientists thinking about these issues at the municipal level. More recently, I'm at the policy lab at Brown University, where we're doing a lot of work, not only in Rhode Island, but helping other states and counties and cities across the country think about how to both hire behavioral scientists into government, as well as how to structure efficient partnerships with universities and other research entities to kind of bring the people in place to help think about this. And then the final thing I would say again is that, you know, this, that my point about just a design concern coupled with running experiments, particularly that latter part of running experiments, that's, that is something I think is relatively newer. Right. So I think, you know, you can actually look back in the some of the earliest psychology textbooks, actually, interestingly, like in the 1910s and stuff like that, folks like Hugo Munsterberg and others, they actually started off motivating the field of psychology as relevant to public policy. One of the first applied psychology books by Hugo Munsterberg was called, I think it was like Psychology on the Stand or something like that. And it was all about what psychology could offer to the design of court systems. And so like the genesis of the field was actually highly attuned to public policy. But then we had this like dropping out happen throughout the (laughs) the middle of the 20th century that had things kind of slip slip out of it. But my point is that some general awareness of the relevance of human behavior has been around for quite a while. But the development of techniques like randomized field experiments and some of the statistics around it, things where we actually – you know, take a take a program and flip a coin to decide whether a person is going to get that program or not. And then having different kinds of statistics to use that fact of two different groups to make a tight measurement on whether that program caused a change or not. Those those methods have been really sort of developed and refined over the last 50 or so years. And it's really in the last 20 or so years that that governments have started to do or to contract with firms to run more experiments on social service programs. And I think we still have a tremendous amount of further experimentation to do. But I think the fact that we're running experiments is going to be a game changer for our ability to learn what's working and learn what's not working. That's a that's a great thread to, to, to continue to pull on here, David. Let's talk a little bit about some of the experiments that you were involved in. We can go back as far as the White House lab at DC. You did some really great stuff. Uh, are there some favorites and are for sort of whatever reasons, uh, but in terms of maybe impact on on the public discourse, that came from experiments, you know, field studies, RCT type type things. We've done a lot of experiments now. So the Office of Evaluation Sciences has done well over 100 big uh, field experiments. We've done 
dozens more at the, the city level on all kinds of topics. I think a lot of the early ones were deliberately focused on kind of outbound communications and processes and things like that. So the way yep. the letters were communicating to people across the country about what kinds of resources were available to them to repay their student loans, for example, is a space where, you know, your typical communication on that is full of, of jargon and legalese. And it's very complicated <laughs> to figure out about it. And so we, you know, had a bunch of redesigns on those communications to make it simpler and easier to understand. But what I might pick out as some examples, a little bit more to point on your question, Tim, is that building on the momentum from a lot of the kind of quicker A-B tests on communications and things like that have been the expansion of randomized field experiments on much bigger types of social programs or interventions that involve physical things in the world. Right. And so right. in D.C., for example, we worked with the police department to randomize the rollout of body-worn cameras on officers. Yeah. So over the course of a year, had randomly selected group of officers wearing cameras that we could compare to another group of officers who, by that random assignment, didn't have cameras. And so we could get what at the time was one of the tightest measurements in the world on whether cameras were actually causing a difference in outcomes such as the likelihood that force was used, the quality of the interaction between residents and officers, as you might see it, and things like complaints and so on. And notice that like that's a that's a an issue. You know, whether behavior changes if you're being or you think you're being observed on camera, that of course there's a lot of theory on from psychology. Yep. Going back and, and a lot of studies showing that people tend to act a little bit differently if they're being observed. There's certainly been attempts to try to use historical, you know, data on issues of policing to kind of look back and you know try to find patterns. Of, of some of those outcomes and things like how many officers are happen to be around, were there CCTV cameras and things around. But it's really something different when you can introduce the randomized field experiment because you empower yourself with a method that allows you to really make an apples to apple comparison, right? So unlike some of the econometric right. methods where to know you're comparing the right things, if you were to, for example, just look at DC officers with cameras to you know, across the border, Virginia officers who at the time didn't have a camera. Yeah. You saw a big difference there. You wouldn't be sure whether it was caused by the camera or the fact that like Virginia is just a very different place than DC. But because we're flipping those coins to set the groups in DC, you know, they're in the same area. They're experiencing the passage of time in the same way. When the police chief changed, it changed for both groups at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They're getting the same training. They're getting the same kind of policy and, you know, information that's coming in. All they're of on the factors. same streets. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's right. So the method is special, but the other deeper reason I like this example is that it does, to my mind, show that we can run experiments on even some of the most complicated and kind of hot button issues. I think it's it's not uncommon for folks to sometimes have an intuition that it would just be too hard to randomize. Mm. It would be too difficult. It would be something that would slow down the project. And we've shown through projects like that, that, that doesn't have to be the case. You can actually pull these off relatively quickly if you figure out how to embed them in the rollout of the program. And you can handle some of the sensitivities around it, if you embrace what I think are just some best practices of, of being a researcher, of being open about the work that you're doing, engaging the community very closely, that's going to be consuming this information to involve them in the design of the study. 
and also working with politicians to understand that the results are going to be something that we don't control, right? And so <laughs> being aware that you can talk about an idea as a good one while also admitting that we're not exactly sure how it's going to work. And the responsible political thing to do is to just be straightforward about that and be committed to learning how it works. So you put all that yeah. together, I think it's now hard to say whenever you have any other type of issue out there that we can't do something like an RCT because we have examples like that one that have shown that you can do it on even some of the most complicated projects. Well, I, I, I think the first time that you and I talked about this project, while you were still gathering data, and complication was a word that was was pretty top of mind, I think, for you on this because it was it was complicated. Let's get to the headline. What you know? Let's not bury the headline here. What what were the results? What and first of all, how long did the study go on? And and what did you learn? What what did the city learn from having this randomized control test with some officers with body cameras and some with not? So it ran for about nine months, and this was several years ago, back in twenty. Uh, 13, I think, 2014. Yeah. Well, wow. paper if I'm off by a year or two. Wow. Yeah. And at the top line, we didn't actually detect any meaningful differences on anything that we were tracking, use of force, complaints, or so on. Right. And if you if you go check out the paper or the website, which is just uh, at if you just if you just Google the lab at DC body worn camera, it'll pop right up. We actually spent a lot of time in the paper and on the website explaining what that no result could mean as well as what it doesn't mean. Actually, the paper might be unique in that it's mostly about how to avoid misinterpreting that result. Our point was not that we showed that body cameras are a bad idea, but I think the upshot is the expectation that a lot of folks had at the time, that if you strap cameras on, you're just going to see an immediate and very large reduction in uses of force. This is a result that should have, and at this point really did, cause people to recalibrate that expectation, right? Yeah. And so now the discussion has shifted to, well, maybe it's not going to cause that, that very large drop, but perhaps if we use the video footage more carefully in the downstream court adjudication processes, if we use the video footage very carefully in retraining officers, if we do things like that, then perhaps we can squeeze some additional benefits out of a body-worn camera program. And that all strikes me as very promising. But notice that that initial result did move the thinking and push it in that direction of a more nuanced press on how to get the most out of this program rather than what was the initial rough and ready expectation, which was just strap on the cameras and then use of force problems will, you know, be solved. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's not the Dusted case. Dusted and done. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the things I love about this idea that you're just talking about, this element of doing the experimentation in such a way that you're actually exploring hey, here's the hypothesis that we have on this, that this is going, A is going to drive B. And the fact of the matter is, is oftentimes A doesn't drive B or it drives B in a way that we weren't quite sure of, or there's some modification, you know, moderating factors that come into this. And you don't find that out unless you do those types of experiments. And so you could see an increase or a decrease in, in whatever you're you're looking at but if you do an experiment, you don't know if that where that's coming from or what's being the, the cause of that. And so or if there are better ways of implementing it. I know many of the the communication pieces that you've talked about. We talked about like, yeah, you get 10 different messages out there. And if we would have just gone with the first one. It showed a one percent increase or whatever. But wow, we looked at this and we saw a five percent increase, which is five times the the impact. And therefore, that is you know something that we need to be considering. And. 
you're talking about this within policy and government. It's the same thing that happens within organizations, right? It's the, the exact same things you're talking. It slows it down. It costs more, does all of those factors. And so we just need to run with, with our best guests at the beginning and just, you know, hope that it works to the best. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm also optimistic about randomized experiments on the political front to just unpack a little bit more what I quickly alluded to a minute ago, which is, I think, and this, what I'm about to describe hasn't fully happened yet. Okay. And I'll begin by saying that often one reason people think we can't do these sorts of randomized experiments in the public policy setting is that it does by design involve treating people differently. You know, we're flipping a coin to decide whether a person's going to get a service or not, or a policy or not. And there's a intuition that I think is a good one there, which is that might be a bad idea. That might even be unethical if we know the program works. Mm. Because then don't bother with this nonsense of withholding it from certain folks. But let's be clear, like we don't need to run experiments when we know something works. The yeah. instances I'm really focusing on here are places where we don't know if a policy or a program works, which is unfortunately a huge swath of policies and programs that we do. We might think they work. We might hope that they work. There might be good theoretical reasons to think that they do, but that is different than actually sort of verifying with, with measurements and things that it that it does. But I think the that downside, that political downside aside, randomized experiments have a lot of political benefits relative to other methods. One is that they're just a lot easier to explain. It's very difficult to explain econometric techniques. And when people are talking about <laughs> regression results and showing coefficients and arguing about whether they handle the standard errors and everything right, I think a lot of people, and I'm thinking now of particularly the community that needs to sort of absorb these results and be persuaded by them, yeah. it can be difficult to engage on that front because the technical weeds are not only challenging, there's just a thousand different ways you can make those technical decisions and if you can't engage the community in how to make those technical decisions, it sort of like by default goes to just some random, you know, scientist to make judgment calls on how to do the modeling. That's 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 problematic. Whereas with the experiment, like you can talk about, and I've done this in many different communities with with high school students and things like that, you can explain the coin flipping behind an experiment in a few minutes. And people can kind of get it, right? The yeah. other nice thing about it is that as you're following along on that path and understanding what's happening there, I think it provides a kind of transparent feedback loop for everybody to participate in. By which I mean, if you actually talk in advance and get people to agree on a method before you run the trial and collect the results, you can get some political agreement that, you know, I'm not saying the study's perfect, but like, this is the way we're gonna measure body cams as a community. We think it's good enough given what we know today so that then when the results come in, they feel and are a lot more persuasive on the political front than if you didn't have that advanced engagement. Instead, you know, you give the data set to a statistician way over there. He or she comes back, shows the fancy econometric models, and then everyone starts to argue about, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done it this way. I would have done it that way. And that's why in a lot of spaces like, you know, this minimum wage work or something like that, you can find 20 economists saying anything you want. It's because of all those sorts of variances and how they're making those decisions and the inability to engage the community and participating in it. I think we can do that with a lot of these randomized experiments, though. So as the country is, is growing more divided, how difficult is it to get that agreement up front on the experiment, that, that political agreement, that both sides of the aisle are willing to say, sure, this isn't perfect, but we think that it's a reasonable experiment. And then when the results come in, 
both sides basically <laughs> say, okay, that's what happened. You know, that's what we're going to go with. Well, we did it with the body cam study and I do that with all the projects we do now. And I would, I would offer this. So as I've talked about trying to get people to actually sign off on pre-analysis plans in advance, I, I do think it was a combination, common intuition to say like, that's nuts. People aren't going to do it. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think what's, I think what's lingering under the surface there is a assumption that one of the parties or one of the actors in this debate is not acting in good faith, right? Yeah. So an intuition yeah. of like, well, yeah. I'll sign on to the pre-analysis plan because I know it's going to show the results I want. But you know, my opponent over there will never agree to do this because they want to be able to manipulate the data after the fact and get everything they want. But from from pressing this now in several different places. I'm finding that everyone is always saying that about the person to their left. <laughs> they think they're right, right? I mean, it's why oh, they disagree. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, someone on the left to say, well, I'll do it if you can convince someone over there to do it, but I bet you can't convince them. And then I go over to the right and I'm like, well, I'll do it, but I bet you can't convince anyone over there to do it. <laughs> but if everyone thinks that they're right anyway, which is usually the case, then I actually find that it's a much easier task than you might initially think to, mm. to negotiate some of the, the agreement. And then notice if you actually take these agreements and make them public, right? I mean, like you actually write it up, you put it somewhere, you can't edit it after the fact. It's not that you're like removing the politics from the situation. I don't actually think that's the thing to do. I mean, we're talking about political things when we're talking about politics, but we are kind of curating the politics in a particular way. And then frankly, making it very politically awkward to back out of using the results after the fact, right? Like if the results come in, you need it and you want to change your approach to the methods. That's okay. There might be instances to do it, but your rationale better be something other than like, Ugh, I didn't like the results, right? <laughs> like that's not going to fly. People are going to hammer you politically for that. And so I think that's a healthy way of constructing the political dialogue to get the best out of the politics that we need in a decision like this, while avoiding some of the kind of like after the fact motivated reasoning that usually disrupts, disrupts so much of it. Well, and David, with that, I, I hear that and I I fully, you know, applaud that. I have my, and this is my own personal biases though, but I, I, I'm wondering, have you seen actual change? Because the, 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 again, my personal kind of, you know, viewpoint on this is that they have a political perspective and it's very hard to get them off of that political perspective. And therefore left, right, doesn't matter. It, it is like, all right, the data came in, well, we're just going to, it's going to be cognitive dissonance and we're going to be, you know, confirmation bias. And I'm going to discount that. And I'm going to talk still about how, you know, whatever uh, minimum wage works or doesn't work. Right. And, and increasing minimum wage is better or bad, regardless of what the data actually ends up saying, because that's the political point that my constituents have, you know, put me into position to, kind of say, here's here's the position that we want you to be holding, and therefore it's really hard to change. I don't know, though, and, and I would love to hear stories where it's changed. Well, good news, bad news. The bad news is that everything I'm describing has not been done enough and at enough scale to have any stories yet one way or the other on whether we're going to see you know massive shifts in, in certain topics, right? So I feel very good about the instances where we have successfully engaged in this kind of process and pulled off projects. But, you know, it's a handful at this point. But the good news is that I do think what we're seeing so far in these first case studies is very promising. So with the body cam example, just to stick with it, since we're already mentally on that space, 
the usual quibbling that would happen, I think, when the results got released, by which I mean the result gets studied, the, the results get posted, and then you know immediately there's documented research on what I'm about to describe. People see the result, and if they like the result, method looks great. If they dislike the result, people get really worked up to try to scrutinize all the various problems, and they point out that they would have done the method, et cetera, different, and then they, they, just, they dismiss the study. Again, if you're doing the buy-in on the methods in advance, that play is sort of diffused. And so that was the experience in D.C., where we went back out into the community meeting with pick your poison on the groups, right? The police department and union, ACLU, Black Lives Matters groups, and so on, who had all gotten briefings on the method when the results came back out, absorb the results immediately. There's really only like one moment where, and it actually kind of almost proves the point where I was one of the community events I was in and sharing the results. Somebody stood up in the audience and was like, why in the world would we believe you? You work for the city. And before I could respond, a, a different person in the audience stood up and said, no, 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 that's Yoakam. He, he was here a few months ago, and this is like exactly the figure he said he was going to report. And the first person just said, oh, great, cool. And like sat back down, right? And that's, you know, this is one, this is one anecdote that I'm telling you, but I would feel less optimistic about what might be possible if what I'm suggesting actually started to spread. If on these first instances of doing it in case studies, it was just a complete failure, but it hasn't been. It's actually felt very positive, and that increases my hope that it'll continue to to work. I'm sure other problems will surface, but I do think we need to start trying this much more frequently and at much higher scales than we currently are in the field. Well, David, thank you because you just made me feel a whole lot better. And even though it, it you know, again, lots of opportunities for successes and failures moving forward, but at least there's a glimmer. There's a, that glimmer of hope that we can maybe pull these two sides that are being so far disparate in their their positions and everything else. Maybe we can pull them together with real good science and we can do it in a way that actually brings us and says, yes, let's agree and let's look at the facts and let's make decisions on facts and not just opinions. So, all right. So that's the experimental side. How hard is it or what are the challenges that you face then moving it from here's our data, this is what we learned, Everybody has said grace over the over the methods, and we didn't dismiss it all out of hand. How about actually turning that into policy? What are the challenges that that you face, or or that politicians face, for that matter? Well, it is connected to actually pulling off the projects in the first place. So let me let me try oh. to unpack what I mean by this. Notice that everything I was describing a moment ago of actually weaving the experiments into the delivery of the program itself, doing a tremendous amount of political work around the advanced discussions of how you were doing the methods and involving the community. There's very little evidence currently being generated in that manner. Most evidence of studies being done with historical administrative data or looking at case studies elsewhere and then trying to come with the paper in hand and convincing folks to pay attention to it. And that's just really hard. It's hard for the reason you alluded to, Kurt, of often folks just get very sort of motivated in the reasoning and even processing those papers and dismiss it if they don't like the result. It's additionally hard for the incredibly mundane reason that civil and political staff in America, at least, although in most in many countries, are tremendously understaffed, right? So the ability for a particular 
department head or congressional office, whatever the case may be, to actually absorb all the information that is out there. And I just mean, even if they're in all good faith, they want to absorb it, forget about the motivated reasoning stuff, just like literally trying to follow the literature. They just don't have the time to do it, right? Which is why if anyone listening has ever had the experience of like shooting over their paper to someone in their city council or something like that, and then they like get a quick, like, yeah, yeah thanks. And then nothing ever happens with it. I can almost <laughs> promise you it's not because they don't care about your study or evidence. They probably just didn't have even 10 minutes to deal with reading it, as well as the additional legwork of thinking about how to interpret what you're suggesting in a way they can operationalize, right? If you run an experiment, for instance, on showing a program that works if it's got a $5 million budget and 30 people to operate it, but I, as the head of the local department of transportation, only have a $1 million budget and two people, like, what do I do? Do I cut your suggestion in 10th? Can I do half of it? Do I need to remove these components? It gets super complicated to think about immediately. And that's almost always the case, by the way. There's very few things you can just take off the shelf from some other jurisdiction and immediately implement. And so where I'm going with all of this is that this capacity problem is on the one hand responsible for why it's difficult to absorb information that's already out there. But of course, it also feeds into the challenges of actually doing what I was been suggesting in terms of the additional experiments I think we need as part of day-to-day government. I think we frankly need a combination of more civil servant and political staff, right? Some of this means folks with technical training of a particular sort, but we also need many more project managers and people to make sure that the intended plans are actually being executed with fidelity. I think we also need additional and different types of partnerships with the broader research community. So universities, for example, are often very disconnected from their local government in surprising ways, ways that continue to surprise me to where you might have even on public policy programs, say, that has very few connections with the city and county or state government that's located around it. Or to the extent they do have connections, they're pretty thin or they're very specific. You know, it's one particular professor who happens to have a research agenda that happens to be of relevance to the city. And so they coordinate on that one thing. But I think many folks in day-to-day civil service will tell you that when they try to pick up the phone and call someone on the research side, well, A, maybe they don't even know like who to call. But if they do, the experience breaks down pretty fast in terms of feeling particularly useful. So I think there's some things to be done on that front that would help on the, the capacity issue as well. And that's that's really, I spend a lot of my time on that issue now, actually, um, in terms of, of new work coming down the pipeline. Well, and that that's, that sort of speaks to, to the work that you're doing at uh, the Policy Lab at Brown. Right. Is your is your you're trying to build those bridges and any successes that you can talk about at this point? Yeah. Well, there's on top of just checking out the policy lab, which you should go to the policy lab. I'll humbly submit has been successfully doing a lot of good work with some great partners in Rhode Island government. But I would also throw out as another couple of examples in North Carolina set up an entire office called the Office of Strategic Partnerships based out of the budget office that is, as its name suggests, dedicated to the mission of of, of working with agencies to identify and sort of curate, curate questions that, if answered, would be helpful to the policy or programmatic process, and then developing deeper relationships with the university scene 
And through a combination of events, matchmaking, templating of memorandums of understanding, helping troubleshoot data shares and things like that is actually matching and helping put together research teams, combinations of people from both the agency and the university to then go and work on that project. A similar sort of endeavor at the municipal level is coming out of the Southwest in San Antonio, where there, over the last few years, have been putting together something called the R&D League. A lot of similar sort of features, but it's got some dedicated staff, some wonderful staff in the, in the city office there who are focused on building partnerships with the University of Texas, San Antonio campus that's right in the area, as well as a couple of interesting uh, nonprofit groups. There's one called the Southwest Research Institute or SWERI that's in their backyard. They actually help NASA build rockets, for example, literally. <laughs> that they're having some wow. partnerships with and doing things like looking at you know, sensors on garbage trucks and things like that to detect potholes and things. And so both of those are examples of places where a combination of, you know, empowering people in a dedicated way on the civil surface side to, to focus on this work, as well as putting some resources around the kinds of events and partnership structures you need with the broader research community is leading to a capacity increase where the number of projects they're able to work on and the complexity of those projects is, is increasing. And I think we need a lot more. We need a lot more of that. Well, and David, what it sounds like too, is you're not just increasing that capacity, but you're crossing those silos, right? The within government, even the, you know, the department of uh, transportation might have this piece, but now you're bringing that back and saying, Hey, here's some insights that we found and in, in different pieces that can be used across different areas within that government component. Again, I think about this within just, the, you know, the corporations that we work with. One of the big issues is, yeah, we'll get in, we'll get to be able to work with, you know, the incentive department or the human resources department or whatever. And those elements, the way that you do the work, the insights that you gain are great for that department, but they have applications across the different areas that because of the way that those organizations are set up, it doesn't necessarily transfer. And I think what you're talking about is actually breaking some of those silos down within government. I think there could be some similar aspects of, of putting together a league or a, you know, a different piece within a company in order to do the same thing. I totally agree. I think everything we've been talking about transfers into that environment very, very closely. I mean, I'm giving the examples of government because that's the waters I've been swimming in for the yeah. last decade. Yeah, well, that's um, good. Yeah but, I, yeah, but I agree. Corporations and businesses should be thinking about this as well. You know, the one place where I think there is something, and actually what I'm about to say is probably applies to businesses too, but to thread in one another very important aspect of what I think is very kind of exciting about this capacity development at the government label, it's connected to what I was describing in terms of the community engagement. I mean, all of this to my mind, I mean, it gets me up in the morning on this stuff. It's not like jamming on technical weeds and things like that. It is this prospect that if we yeah. can sort out this any particular issue a little bit better, the life in a particular neighborhood or a particular community, what you know, an individual or a family is able to do as they're pursuing the things that you try to pursue in your life. If we can make it that a little marginally better, then that's, a, that's an exciting enterprise to be a part of. But a lot of research is um, never, almost never really intentionally. You know, it, it's the teams working on it or end up disconnected from discussions with and feedback and kind of co-creation with who are the ultimate like consumers or people impacted by that research. And so having this sort of nexus of 
identifying problems in government, it has this benefit where, you know, government by design is all about politics. And I mean that in a good way of actually trying to keep a yeah. pulse on what people in a community are, are trying to do or hoping is going to happen. What are the questions that are important to them? What's the information that they wish they had as they were thinking about the next election or whether to support a ballot or not? And if we can sort of allocate more of our research capacity, if you will, in a way that is better tapped into community needs, I think it's a great thing. I think it's going to lead to research that is felt as more practical and and meaningful for folks, which will probably have a nice side benefit of just helping bolster support for for science writ large. And I think it's going to make the research better, right? I mean, in my experience, there is no better feedback than actually trying to do something out in the world, as well as having people who are being impacted, like know where to find you and talk to you about whether it's working. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, peer, peer review, process like eat your heart out i mean it's yeah. nowhere near <laughs> as high stakes as having to go out into the community and talk about yeah. the results and justify it and things like that and so i think the yeah. that pressure and that feedback on the community front is going to lead to a lot more creative science and a lot more rigorous science and that's that's great too yeah I, we've got to talk about your new podcast for for just a minute here the Thirty Thousand leagues I'm just curious, is this a big Jules Verne? Are you a huge Jules Verne fan? Is that it? And why a narwhal as the logo? And, you know, or nar- narwhal, I mean, <laughs> depending on your pronunciation. Uh, so uh, t- tell us a little bit about 30,000 Leagues. So, so the C connection, well, there's a couple of things happening there. One, Rhode Island is a land of of water of course and so it's a little bit of play on that although a lot of the sea metaphors predate predate my time in rhode island where in dc there's a moment in time where i don't remember exactly why this happened but for some reason slipped into talking about how we were selecting our portfolio of project work by way of a nautical metaphor and pointing out that you know what we really need to be going for at some level is, is tracking big whales of projects. You know, those, 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 oh, yeah. those research yep. studies that are going to really move a big area of the field. It's going to impact millions of people, millions of, or billions of dollars at stake, but you can't pursue only that because they take an incredibly long time to, to execute. And if you're not delivering some faster results, support to have your team even exist is going to dissipate. And so you need some fast moving. I was like talking about dolphins, right? You need some like fast six, 12 month wins. You need to make some forms work better or something like that. And then I was also pointing out that you, you also just encounter once you get into this, a ton of just problems that you can solve in a couple of hours. You know, somebody who's been doing the updating of a submission of data by hand that if we allocate a couple of hours, we could automate that script. And then free up that person for something else. This is kind of like plankton in the water, right? So like <laughs> overall diet, okay. you've got a yeah, yeah. I warned you this was this was a little yeah. a little bit of a stretch, but your overall you're overall diet. Be- you're beating the daylights out of this metaphor. Beating the bit, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so so narwhals became a thing then, and people start bringing me like narwhal swag and stuff like that. And then it plays into to Jules Verne for the podcast, where you know it's all about exploration and the unknown. And that's what I try to do in the podcast is explore you know, interesting scientific topics, play around with how they might or might not interplay with, with politics. But, you know, Vern's only went 20,000 leagues down. Yeah. We go deeper still, guys. You're going an we're extra 10,000 leagues. 30, yeah, there you go. That's right. That's right. 
That's that's fantastic. Do we have time for just one quick question about yeah, what's on your I've playlist? Got a, I've, got a, I've got another like 15 minutes, actually. Not presuming y'all do, but. <laughs> <laughs> David, real quickly, uh, and this is not to Carl's any kind of heart palpitations, but what's on your playlist these days? Music wise? Yeah. <laughs> Tim or, always asks the music question. I mean, Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this was actually a speed question. When I talked to you guys the first Last time, time, it could have been, been. made the answer then, I think, but it's still the answer now of enjoying Pick Your Poison on Spotify, Pandora, whatever. The playlist where you can actually set it in motion and set some parameters on exploration so that you're getting fed new songs is actually yeah. how I like to do yeah. playlists just so that you can get introduced to new artists and things like that at any given moment. And so I think last, when you asked me this last time, I think I literally had to pull up my phone to just see like what was in. Yes. yes in there yeah. and then read off some stuff. I'd yeah. have to do the same, I'd have to literally do the same thing now. Uh, Cause I, I don't, I don't actually know what my like last 10 songs were. I think I actually entered into a weird phase of older, like bluegrass country music, like original, oh, actually, it just, like, just came back to me, like original, original Hank Williams. Or something like that. Oh, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why that algorithm started to bring me down that way. It's interesting how those algorithms take something. You know, like I'm going. I started off with this artist, and then I said added this artist in, and now you know, a month later, that is a whole different playlist that comes up than what that original. You know, the Damien Rice playlist is no longer like. There's no Damien Rice in it, and it doesn't have any musicians that even sound like Damien Rice. It is all, you know, yeah. somewhere else and some like or something that I did on one of those songs that Death then took metal. it down some weird, strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it is. I have always wanted more control over the degree of exploration. Like, I'm yeah. just driven nuts by how you can just get pulled into a, narrower and narrower band and the fact that that's oh. not given as a user feature where you could turn a dial and say like i want my next song to be the op tell me something i hate even yeah it's weird to me that doesn't exist you know i try to hack at it by periodically finding finding songs or asking people what their favorite artists are and then deliberately finding it in the app and liking it just yeah. to lie to the algorithm and say like i love this stuff just to like try to throw off it's throw off the scent, if you will, on me liking all the same genre just to keep it a little bit more. Does it work? Freedom. It does. It's a, it's a little bit annoying. I mean, I would rather have them build in the dial, but they're not listening but to me is, on this one. That's an interesting piece, though. I mean, even as we think about this just in social media in general and all of the issues that have been coming up with, you know, all the Facebook components that have been going on, this idea of. Yeah, it tends to narrow that search, right? It brings the, it takes this wide variety and it it actually points us in a much more narrow uh, opportunity to get different points of views, different music, different elements. And it would be probably, I mean, granted, you may not stay on that social media platform as long because you run into a song that you go, ugh, oh, wait, I, I forgot that I'm even listening to this now. And now, now I, I, I'm shutting it off. But that would be a great opportunity across social media platforms to be able to say, show me stuff I don't like. Show me the opposite of what I liked here. I like 10 things in a row that are all kind of similar. Well, now point me to something that is absolutely contrary to that. And 
let me see it. Let me explore it. Let me hear about it. You know, those are great opportunities, I think. Well, y'all and any listeners join me in sending an email or a feature request to your uh, music <laughs> provider of choice. Pandora, Spotify, all of those. Yes. No response. <laughs> well, next time we talk to Elizabeth Kim, our, our buddy who is a behavioral scientist over at Spotify, we're going to we're going to bug her about that. So. Please do. Please do. Yeah, yeah, so there we, we go. go. David, it is always a pleasure catching up with you. And thanks so much for the time. The conversation was wonderful. And uh, thanks for being a guest on Behavior Groups again. Absolutely, Tim McCurry. It's great to see you guys. Always great. Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with David, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our disengaged and totally blown minds. Disengaged and totally blown. That's uh, almost sounds contradictory. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Maybe they're disengaged because they were blown. I don't know. I see. Okay. I don't so know. I don't know. That was, that was uh, you know. You know that, that, that was a stretch. It okay. was a, it was a long stretch. But, well, but that's what we do. We, we live we live on the on the edge or the cutting room floor wherever it is. I was trying to think of government and different pieces, and I got ah, I didn't you know that's 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 part of this. But you know the the disengage piece that was that was a cool piece. But let's 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 go to the government part first. Let's, yes, let's talk about. Yeah. Let's talk about. I think what was really interesting to me was this idea that behavioral science in government is changing that yes that 20 years ago it was a different kind of pull need to get behavioral science involved now it's much officials are much more aware there are better methods talk david talked about the experimental designs and how that has changed and the the um way that we can really understand what's going on with these things and the, the data that we have available to us um, and that it's being used more, that there is a lot more behavioral science being implemented inside of all levels of government, not just large national organizations, but as he has done within cities, within municipalities and, and his work at the, you know, at the, at the Brown University is really about taking those insights and applying them um, with, you know, academia and within government at various levels. Well, we, I mean, we've had several conversations with David and it almost feels like, I, I think if he were here, he would say, let's focus our behavioral science tools on more local resources. Let's, it's not that the federal level, the government, you know, the national level is bad, but, but let's actually get, get focused on it. He also said something that I thought was pretty cool. And it's like, you know, if it works, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, <laughs> don't fix it. Right. Like, like if, if, if the, the things that are, that are working, that are happening are working, we don't need an experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Quote, we don't need to experiment if we know it works. Oh, there we go. How, how yeah. blazingly obvious is that? And yet, how many yeah. times do we tend to do that? Because, oh, it's it's like, well, I don't know. We should we should experiment on this. We should do this. No, it works. Don't you don't yeah. need to do that. Yeah. But if we are going to experiment, he did have some tips that I think not just a, not only apply to the to the governmental and the policy world there, but also if you're in the corporate world and you're looking to run behavioral science uh, experiments or studies or tests, how 
pilots, however you want to frame them. Uh, I think that these these steps could really, really help, um, you know, w- within pretty much however you're doing it. Yeah. And I loved this conversation about how do you uh, how do you get people who are on two very opposing sides, you know, and, and in government, it's often Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, if you do a study and then you come back and that study says, oh, we found X. Well, if I'm on the side that likes X, the study is wonderful and it's great. <laughs> if I'm on the study, if yeah. I'm on the side that doesn't like X, that that's contrary to my belief system, then I will f- destroy you. You did this wrong. You messed up here. You should have done it this way. You should have done it that way. And and his idea of like we need to get agreement on the study design yep. up front. And 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 I loved his. I loved how he talked about this idea where. You know, if if I'm going to these two different parties and I say, here's the study, as long as it's not totally unbalanced to going one or the other, like it's it's a pretty mundane kind of thing. But we're looking to find whatever the result is, is that if I give it to the left, they're going to go, oh, yeah, because this study is going to prove my point of view. And if I give that to the right, they're going to go, yeah, this is good because that's going to prove my point of view. And so then we agree. We agree up front on here is how we're going to go and study this. Here are the things that we are going to measure. Here is how we're going to gather the information. And we all agree up front and we shake hands on it. Then whatever X is at the end, it's much harder for whatever group to kind of disavow that that is done because it's a bad experimental style. Because look, you agreed to it up front. Transparency always wins out, right? Uh, and by the way, this tip also applies if you're in the corporate world. I'm just going to reiterate that because this is really important. The, the next thing he said was to develop a pre-analysis plan. Yeah, this is this is one, again one of these transparency things where we've we've agreed on on this general hypothesis on this general approach. Now let's build a plan that we can all say grace over as well. Yeah. And I think that this is an important aspect, uh, again, in David's integrate the, you know, be very open and in, and uh, inclusive in the process. Yeah, this is, the, this is part of that overall piece, right? It's like, have the pre-analysis plan, get people to sign off on it. Then it's yes. much harder for them to come back and complain on the back end. And, you know, it gets support. It, it, it gains, it, it is the support aspect that really pulls all of this together and I think is really cool. So, yeah. And he does a really wonderful job of it too. Oh he my is gosh. the ultimate diplomat, I think in, in that regard, but he it's it, in part because he just really sticks to the sticks to the data. Yeah. You know, well, but, really, I, but I loved his, his component when he was talking about the, the, the study, the, um, uh, wearable video study for the police in, in DC. Yeah. And he's bringing the body, body cams back out to the, back out to the community and the, the one person's about ready to, you know, say, Oh, you, you know, why should we believe you? And then the other person in the community stood up and said, look, no, he came and talked to us about this in advance. Uh, and then I'm like going, ah, yeah, that's just a oh, yeah. wonderful story that shows the power of what you do when you start involving people and involving particularly the communities that you are working with. And you know, we were talking policymakers on that thing, but he's also bringing this to the point of saying, look, it's not just the policymakers that you have to convince of the, this research. It is the communities that you're impacting. And so yeah. make sure they're part of this conversation as well. And I loved all of yeah. that. Yeah. What else struck you, Kurt? What else? Okay. Uh, so, so, I mean, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot, but I think 
the piece that really struck me, which is nothing to do with his work and nothing to do with like <laughs> the research that he did outside of his, his me search on this idea is this idea about disengaging this idea oh, about on a personal basis, on a personal yeah. basis, this yeah. idea that, look, we need to take a break. We need to disconnect and recharge and, mm-hmm. um, you know, get away from your phone, get away from the computer, not just away for an hour or two hours, but get away for an extended amount of time. And you're, in, you're I can tell you're intrigued by this. I'm not intrigued. I'm, I'm, I, you're going to do it. Well, we, there, there is this aspect. And again, right now when we're recording this, this is in the middle of, uh, you know, Russia has just invaded the Ukraine, you know, a couple days yeah. ago, we're in the midst of, you know, still in the pandemic and all of these other factors that are going on. And I realized how it, you look out on social media, you, you pick up your phone and what do you do? You look at something and you just get pulled in, you get pulled into this element. And I'm not saying that we need to be disengage from the world. That's not what I'm saying, but I think we need to disengage at certain points from the world for our own sanity's sake, um, to, to take that stress level down from 11 to something that's more manageable so that we're not constantly being triggered by the latest news cycle, the latest thing that's going to, you know, push in our face, you know, what, what murder happened today, what, you know, economic downturn is, is being foreseen, what idiot said something stupid in Congress, right? All of those factors that we tend to over-focus on when we have a life that is much richer than just those things. And sometimes I think we forget that. It's ironic that earlier we were talking about the success of a of an, a proper experiment involves all this uh, execution and transparency. It's kind of an IKEA effect, right? If you get other people to, you know, if you get everybody to build it, then they'll own it. And and this this second thing that we're talking about here, this is really more like um, cut back so that you can build new neural pathways. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's it's in some ways it's sort of just the opposite uh but it's it's really an important counterbalance to to everything that we have to do in the control side of effort and tasks and goals and all that kind of stuff it's it's really about uh, it's not just about the softer side it really is about the the hard results that we get when we pull back when we stop when we retreat yeah it's important and, and david I, i'm going to quote he said that kind of deep disconnect uh, puts your brain in a different wavelength and and think in terms of just extended periods of time to think and reflect uh, and just to think about what it is that we really want to be and how we want to uh, show up in this world. And if we're constantly bombarded or connected, that doesn't happen. And to your point, these neural pathways in our brain, our brain po- our brain plasticity, right, is really impacted by having. You, you have to you have to be activated. You have to have that uh, uh, that energy and focus to be thinking on things. But then yep. you also, for your brain, oh God, I can't even talk. Right, I need to disconnect so I can actually remember <laughs> how to talk. 
your brain has to have this downtime. And that usually comes in good sleep, can come in, in kind of meditation deep sides. But I think right. there's also this component that says, wow, if we can really disconnect and get ourselves regrounded, um, we come out of that as a different person. I will tell you, I took, um, you know, when I, when I left being full-time and started the Lantern Group 25 years ago, I took a month and I drove in my... $600 Toyota. I think I've told the story before. Love this story. Yeah. Uh, around the country with a tent, um, basically visited a bunch of Western national parks and were, was in a tent and barely talking to anybody, didn't really have any communication with the outside world, outside of talking to people at gas stations or at the ranger station. And I came back and I was in this very different place. And it was a it was a good place, and so I think that's a that's a really key thing. So yeah, yeah. So let's leave people just with this reminder that it's important to to find your groove in this balance of of this you know excessive focus that we that we need to have sometimes, and and blurring the lens, you know, actually softening the lens, not being so focused from time to time in order to get a better, sharper image when we come back to it later. Yeah. And so this is this is my last thing on this, right? Is is don't think about this. Just do it, right? <laughs> go go find find yeah. some way to to do this. And, and and to do that, to do some mental contrasting with implementation intentions. This idea of saying, all right, what is the value that this is going to get for me? Right? What is this going to do for me? That's the the, the, the good side, but then contrast that with what are the roadblocks that are going to be in my way. All right. Yeah. So I, all right, here's the why I want to do it, but man, I got a basis in reality. You know what? Um, I'm going to feel better. I'm going to be recharged. I'm going to have more, more clarity. I'm going to have time to, de to, to decompress, but these roadblocks, okay, work needs me. How can, you know, my family needs me. How am I going to, you know, communicate? I have habits and rituals and routines and it's just, I can't just disconnect, right? That's going to be hard. So understand that, but then build in these implementation incentives. So when this roadblock shows up, then I will do X. And if you do that, that will help you get to that place where, all right, you just got to go out and do it. So, yeah. So with that, I think we should uh, close this episode out. This, this uh, was a great conversation with David. And yeah. I think it's really important as we think through all this. And, and we know that your time as listeners is really valuable. And we want to thank you from the, from the, really from the bottom of our hearts for listening to us. If, if you found this or any of the episodes that we've done to be interesting or insightful, we ask that you do us a favor, that you go out and leave us a review. Give us some stars and write a sentence or two about what you think of the show. Yeah, you know, those stars and those reviews, man, they go a long way to help other people find the show. So it, and frankly, it also brings a big smile to, to Kurt's and my faces. <laughs> it brings a huge <laughs> smile to our faces, Tim. Huge, really huge does. smile. Well, it's because we do this podcast out of love. Yeah. You know, we're regrettably, we're, this is not a get rich quick scheme. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? You know, we're not getting rich off of this? We're not. No, we're not. No, definitely not. Um, it's actually costing us money, but we do it because we think it's important to get these ideas and these insights out to the world, to 
wherever you're listening from, we're doing it for you. So we believe that the ideas are important and that the more people can hear and learn about them, the better our world can be. God, we, we are really altruistic, aren't we? You sound like very sarcastic on that. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I didn't mean to be. No, we, we are. We are altruistic. Well, I mean, think about this. I think there is this this moment that we're in, right? This time of global strife and uncertainty. And, and we think that, look, if we can help people understand each other better, and if we can do that with these insights from behavioral science and maybe thinking about, all right, how can we bring behavioral science into the government, but also into our organizations and into our life. And so it makes better connections with other people that we are smarter about how we think and how we behave. Well, that's going to be a better world. And and uh, yeah, it may sound Pollyanna. It may sound like we're, well, we gotta, we gotta try, you know, but, but I think there's some truth there and I, at least I hope there is. And, and I hope others feel the same way. And if you do, Please, if you can share this with a friend or friends and leave us a review, it, it would go a long way and we appreciate it. Yeah. With that, Groovers, we hope that you've learned a little bit, that you're taking something away from our conversation with David and maybe better off for it. And this week, of course, we hope that you go out and find your groove. 